Thresholds is supported by BetterHelp, which is the largest online counseling platform in the world. Everyone deserves to receive the support they need to thrive mentally, emotionally, and relationally. But the barriers to therapy, financial and logistical, are pretty high right now between social distancing and the kind of economic stress that the COVID pandemic has created for so many people. BetterHelp makes it affordable to connect privately with a licensed counselor online from anywhere. They have counselors specializing in depression, stress and anxiety, grief, relationships and family therapy, wellness for members of the LGBTQ community, and more. They'll help you assess your needs and match you with a counselor quickly. And crucially, they make it easy and free to switch counselors whenever you need until you find the one that's right for you. It's confidential and affordable, and they even offer financial aid. So if you've been feeling like you could benefit from talking to a licensed professional counselor but have been holding off because the process of finding a therapist, getting to the office, and finding a way to afford it seemed like too much to handle, check them out. Thresholds listeners get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash thresholds. That's betterhelp.com slash thresholds. I tell my students, your brain is probably telling you something important. It's saying you're not ready. Take that image with you. Go on a walk and live your life. And maybe something about your life, if you pay attention to it, can show you how to write that thing. Don't fight it. So much of our culture is bent on fighting. David and Goliath wrestling the muse. We look at creation as a battleground. And I think it's one of the greatest uh, detriments to creativity uh, is to see ourselves as participants in war when it should be participants in creation. This is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or crisis, freakout, breakdown, breakthrough, or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. I'm Jordan Kistner. This is Thresholds. Hi, and welcome to season two of Thresholds. Um, if I'm speaking truly honestly, I did not think we were going to have a season two of Thresholds. Um, I didn't even really think we were going to be doing Thresholds in seasons. I started this interview series because I had just finished this book of essays called Thin Places, which was a collection of what I imagined as 13 particularly American contemporary thresholds. I wanted to write about the kinds of weird, slippery things that go on in liminal spaces between identities, countries, mental states, beliefs, etc. Um, the kind of muddy, interesting in-betweens of American culture. And when I was done, I really, really had this hankering to talk to other writers who write about interesting kinds of in-betweenness. And so I I imagined that I would make this project like a little capsule collection, like five or six conversations that we would put out into the world for people to eavesdrop on and then move on to some other project. But once I got started having those conversations, they were, they were just so cool. They were so cool and inspiring and generative. And I, I really didn't want to stop having them. Uh, and in general, Honestly, uh, we've been making this series all in 2020, and in this year, it has felt really good to talk to wise poets and artists and authors and thinkers about how they deal with, like, capital B, big change. Um, 
right as we were in the production for season one, sort of in the middle of recording those that first collection of episodes, the pandemic hit and the world as everyone knew it kind of shifted and shut down. And it seemed at that point like we were all starting to be stuck on some kind of threshold together, right? People were talking about how there was no going back to normal, but also nobody had any idea what a post-pandemic life was going to look like or really even what next week was going to look like. Um, And right after we wrapped, the movement for Black Lives began the uprisings that are still ongoing, which are fighting for the possibility of huge transformation in the world for the better. And, And now it seems like certain parts of American society are starting to more actively imagine a transformed world, even as the world is transforming in ways we can't actively imagine or control. Uh, and in general, the the world seems chaotic and it, like it's changing faster than we know how to keep up with. Um, and it seems like a good time to keep talking about art that's produced from a moment of radical shift. So here we are still going. And uh, so happy and grateful to have you here with us. And so, so truly, truly psyched to get to share with you this next group of conversations, which starts with my conversation with uh, the writer Ocean Vuong, who is the author of On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, which is a New York Times bestselling novel, and also of the poetry collection Night Sky with Exit Wounds. He is a recipient of a 2019 MacArthur Genius Grant, and he's also a professor um, of writing at UMass Amherst. And he came to talk to me sort of explicitly as a starting point about realizing when he was 16 that he needed to change his life. But I have been turning back to this conversation over and over again, partly for that anecdote, which is really remarkable and features Boston Market Cornbread. Um, but also because of the way that Ocean talks about vision and tenderness, how language can be a bridge we build out of a situation that seems totally hopeless and, and how we can use it, use language to be soft with each other or tender with each other rather than violent or to be extra or to be visible or to, um, as he says, build an architecture for our souls. One thing to note is that all of the interviews for season two were recorded in a socially distanced way, which means we weren't in studios. The artists were recording themselves on their phones in their homes. So sometimes you'll hear life happening around them, pets walking by, a car backfiring, furniture creaking, stuff like that. And we hope that you will bear with us. And so with that, um, and no further introduction, I give you Ocean Vuong. Yeah, thresholds. Oh man, they're so they're so dramatic, um, <laughs> and yet we pass over them every day. You know, we move through rooms, and we step over a threshold. You know, my first poem in my first collection is called Threshold. I know. I was so. It felt like um, like a sign, a sign yeah. that we should speak. And it was like um, in that poem, it's interesting because the speaker never passes over the threshold, but only sees beyond it. And I think there's something fraught about vision that is also movement. We, we rarely think of vision as something that we, uh, that, as a trespass. But I think particularly as children, particularly as observers of the world, 
you know, we, we, we are always witnesses of things, often things we don't have any choice in, whether it's beauty or terrible things. And, and when we witness it, our gaze passes over the threshold, but also our experience. You know, we, we, you're not the same after you see something, uh, whether it's beautiful or not. And, and when, you, when you asked me uh, a moment of a threshold, I, I kept thinking about this one time when I was working at Boston Market, that was one of my first jobs. And I was having such a terrible day as one does working in corporate fast food. Um, we had a terrible boss, you know, he was just, um, you know, nothing wrong with evangelical Christians, I suppose, but this one was, uh, you know, he would he would shut down the store and, and, blare and play recordings of televangelists. And it was just the most bizarre. It was, and then meanwhile, the chickens are roasting in the back. It was just, and I, I left my shift and, you know, it's a rural Connecticut. So, you know, you walk across the street and there was this cornfield. And a lot of uh, the, the employees would use it when they walk home. We all walked for some reason um, because it was a shortcut through this main road. And I walked, you know, into this cornfield and it was so so charged because we were selling and eating cornbread um, in the Boston market, um, which is half, I learned later, was just half cake, which is why it was so good. It was actually not, not bread at all. It was cake. Um, and I walked through this, this cornfield and I thought, I need to change my life. I, I don't know how. I need to just, either I stay in this cornfield and just let it swallow me or I just, I got to find a way to get the hell out of, out of all this. Um, and it was, it was this weirdness in the sense that the, the corn hid you. I, you know, you, I said, like, you see the plants all over your head and then you think I can be at any place in time. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I belong to myself, you know, and I think that derangement of the senses, which what Rambo kept talking about, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't feel it with um, um, absinthe, but I felt it with corn. Um, and, and I think that was the moment where I said, I don't know how I'm going to figure it out. I didn't know what art was. I didn't know what poetry was, but I, I knew that I got to find a way to, to, to hide from the life I was given and enter a, a different world, a different cornfield. It's so familiar now going back to New England, but it's just like New England, like working class New England life, you know, not the, the, the private schools that we're known for, you know, not the, the WASP, although they exist. It was the people who ran things, you know, the essential workers as we now understand it. Um, you know, this diverse group of immigrants um, who, you know, come to know the world through this very idiosyncratic uh, nature of these uh, broken New England mill towns, you know. And, and so America as a, a dream, America as a promise felt so far away for all of us, of all races. Um, and so you just watch your friends, you know, die from overdoses of suicide, or they grow up and they're, you know, they were these legends in high school. And then by the time they're 20, they ran out of options and they're joining the Marines and they're killed in Iraq. And it just, it's just like this 
everyone was asking the same questions and none of us knew what to do with it. And it just felt so quintessentially American to me, um, which is also antithetical to the American dream, this golden land of opportunity. Uh, I don't know if I experienced that, particularly after 9-11, particularly in the opioid epidemic. What do you think it was about that day? I imagine that you had seen and walked through that cornfield many times before that day and that you did it again many times afterwards. Yeah, yeah, I think about that. Um, yeah, I think it was more about that week. You know, I had a one of my friends, you know, his name was Crackhead Mike, and he had um, uh, encephalopathy when he, when he was born, and so they had to cut open his head right down the middle. And... You know, he was this very beautiful person, um, but he he grew up in those towns, and and you don't have a lot of hope. And and I, just, I remember it was just the saddest and funniest moment. Yeah, I think it was the day before when I was talking to him, and he said, "I'm going to join the Marines. I'm going to do it." Um, and another friend of mine was there. He said, "How are you going to do it, uh, Mike? You have a, you know you have a crack in your head. They're not going to let you through the the." Examination, and we didn't even know if that's true or not. But what he said, uh, he said, no, no, I, I already figured it out. You know, he had black hair, and he, he took out a sharpie, and he started coloring in the skin on the, in the crack. He said, I, I do this, um, I can make it through it. They don't, they won't pay attention to my head. <laughs> and we just, we just laughed, and I, I just, I don't know why. I just felt like that little act of, of you know, disguising yourself in order to to be a part of a war machine. Of course, I didn't think of it that way um, back then, but it was just so devastatingly quintessential where I was coming from. And I, I just, I was angry at everything that, that made it possible. Um, I was angry at my job, at my boss, and I was just tired. I think exhaustion, exhaustion, you know, uh, as a species, I think it's exhaustion and danger that creates creativity. How do I get out of here? How do I uh, how do I build this fish trap? You know, um, it's always the question. And and I think that that moment of of innovating beyond your condition begins with fatigue, exhaustion, and discontent. I think you've spoken before and written before about language as a portal. Um, as a portal in and out of time, which reminded me of your description of the cornfield as this collapsing of time of being able to be almost anyone in any time as you're just looking up at the corn. And I'm wondering if at that time, when you were standing in the cornfield, you had already started to discover the possibility of language as being another kind of portal that you might step through or use. Yeah, absolutely. There was, um, I mean, my, my, I was raised by women who had only language and they talked forever. I mean, all they did was talk. They talked while they worked. They talked while they bathed you. They talked while they cooked for you. They, they talked, you know, while sitting, while walking. Um, and, and they talked while they were beating you up, <laughs> you know, um, I remember my mother, you know, 
beating my beating me up and and saying how much I look like my father, you know, and she, telling me her whole life story while she was whipping me. Um, and so it was a it's a strange world of, where language was the currency in which one measures time. Uh, how long is a story? You know, uh, how long is a prayer? Um, you know, and we my grandmother would say stuff like that. You know, you go down. Uh, you, you stir this pot, uh, you know, until you're, you know, you chant uh, uh, five, uh, you know, uh, prayers to Buddha, whatever, you know. And, and so that the voice became a measurement of time. And so I was always charged with it, but also being a Vietnamese uh, language speaker, it's a monosyllabic language that uh, depends on stresses. Ma, man, ma, ma. Ma, it's all different words. Ma, ghost. Ma, grave. Ma, mother. Ma, horse. Ma, but, like but this and but that. Um, and that's just one word, M-A. So you have to really pay attention or you'll be in trouble if you're a Vietnamese kid um, in a household. So I was always fine-tuned to it. And I think as a teenager, I would go to these punk bands. Uh, my friends were in punk bands and I would go to these punk shows in like, you know, backyards and basements. And and that's when they uh, introduced me to Patti Smith and Rambo. And I didn't have like a sort of formal uh, literary education. Um, you know, I, I got an MFA because I needed to teach. I, I, I was already, I had a contract by Copper Canyon when I went into my MFA at NYU. It seemed like a practical thing to do to get this piece of paper, to have a life, a career. Um, but I, I came to writing through uh, Rambeau, and I went to the community college, and I said, where do I read more of this guy? And they pointed me to the Dewey Decimal System, which, of course, is organized through continents. So I, I went, I read, uh, you know, Lorca, uh, Vallejo, you know, I was in uh, Europe in Spanish and Latin America, even before, long before I read, you know, Frost and Dickinson. What was it about Rambeau? Oh, it was the queerness, you know, the... The, it was so. It was. It was truly punk rock. It, you know, the first poem I read it was about animals ejaculating. You know, he has this beautiful poem about animals ejaculating in a field, and you know, the queer love. And there's this incredible poem that I teach often called "The, the Sleeper in the Valley," and it's about you know the subversive. Um, a little lyric about someone sleeping in the valley, but then you find out at the end that it's a dead soldier. Um, and that sort of uh, whimsical, magical realism tied to the gravitas of a social political rupture. Rambo was writing in wartime, you know, at, at the second attempt for Napoleon to move and expand West. Um, and he was also 17, you know, and I think he was so young. And I was stunned that someone so young could write The Drunken Boat. Uh, the Drunken Boat full with, you know, literary uh, allusions to the sea uh, by someone who's never seen the sea. Uh, so I think his imagination surpassed the impoverishment of his conditions. And in that way, in a class-based way, um, as well as sexuality, he really, really spoke to me. I think, I think maybe I want to stay for a minute in the cornfield. 
Mm. And return maybe to the language you used at the very beginning about vision. Yeah. And the way that vision can be a way of crossing a threshold without having yet crossed it. And I'm wondering if in that moment you felt like you, when you are sitting there in the cornfield and you think, I have to change my life, I have to get out of here, if you could even begin at that time to envision the next place, the place you wanted to go. Was it, was Rambo a pattern after which you wanted to make yourself then? Or was the, was the imagination different or was it not even there yet? No, it was, I mean, it was, there was nothing. Um, you know, you, you have a sense that maybe you should go to college, you know, and I, and I eventually went to, you know, community college for two years. Um, so you, you get a sense that there's maybe you have to do something other people do. Um, but also there were so many examples of people who couldn't do it around me. And, and so I wish I, <laughs> I wish I walked into a cornfield and decided to be a poet, but it was l much less glamorous and, and traumatic than that. Uh, and I think it's also the most devastating part of this surging desire to change your life, but without any material um, and tools to do so. Um, it, that, that was, I think, true suffering to, 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 to say, I know there should be more, but I have no idea. And you feel like an ant trapped in a jar. Um, and and that's, what it, that's what it felt like for so long. You know, you, you have this great moment of epiphany that in, in, a, in a movie or in a more traditional novel, you know, that's a plot point. <laughs> but in life, it's a quicksand. Oh, you have this incredible epiphany and you feel like you feel so powerful all of a sudden. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm having a great idea while standing in quicksand. Well, so much for the great idea, you know. How do you think that that relationship to epiphany and constraint has shaped the kind of writing you make? That's a great, great question. That's a great question. I think for some reason, I'm always very distrustful of rules and values, um, especially related to writing and aesthetics. And the more I am a student and a scholar of literary history, the more that skepticism is proven valid and necessary. Um, and I'm always trying to ask how I can break a rule or, or subvert expectations in a meaningful way, in a way that's not just merely to make something new or something uh, interesting, but to have a substantial foundational uh, refusal of a certain mode. And, and for me, I think it was the metaphor. I, I think um, in my, my poems and in uh, my novel, I write in perhaps a style that is not very fashionable. Um, it's rich in metaphor rich in a subordinate clause. And many folks might say it's uh, Baroque, uh, purple, sentimental, flowery. Um, but I was obsessed with that style because when I look back further enough, particularly in 19th century American literature, I realized that all of this gendered criticism of this style, flowery, purple, in other words, womanly, 
right? Um, which is uh, not direct, not straight enough, not sobering, not clear enough. All these things were once the pinnacle achievement of men. Allah Dickens, Melville, Hawthorne, Whitman, that, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to remove or delay the period was the equivalent of taking up space, was, to, was this virtuoso of masculinity. And uh, it was very hypocritical, I found, when, when we arrived at modernism, uh, the sentence became truncated and laconic. But in order for men to move beyond or progress from one literary style to another, they had to deem their old tools feminine. I found that so interesting. They couldn't just leave it as it is. They had to say, ah, that's no use to us because it's purple. It belongs to the, to the more weaker-minded amongst us. Um, meanwhile, it was what they celebrated. That feels resonant to me with other kinds of sort of masculine moving forward or even colonizing impulses of rejecting yeah. then what has what, what is being left behind so as to kind of reassert into a mm -hmm. new... Uh, into a new space, and I'm fascinated by that reading of it as a as a gendered transition in syntax. Yeah, and it's it's familiar, right? It's familiar in a, uh, an American boyhood. You know, um, boys are celebrated for moving and doing, and, and you know, as as I, I observed as a child in New England, you know, you see even as young as three or four, the girls are celebrated only for their body. You're beautiful, the dress is beautiful. But the boys right away, go get them, buddy, go knock them dead. You know, not to say that either of those are wrong, but they're so limited in scope. And I wonder what would happen if we celebrated the girls for doing things as well, and also celebrated for the boys for being beautiful, for their own bodies, to have confidence in just being. And so you, you don't have this anxiety to always perform and conquer. Um, and, you know, but right away we delineate the, 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 the gendered restrictions. And I think it affects the imagination greatly as well. That's something that you do so beautifully in your writing in a way that sometimes sounds to my ear Whitman-esque is the celebration of masculine beauty or of male male beauty, um, the celebration of beauty as an, as an agendered thing. Um, yeah. It felt so taboo, you know, to, to you know, you... <laughs> In a way, we, we, I think so many boys in America wanted to say that to each other, but we didn't know how. To, it was too risky. You know, the, the saddest phrase that I've learned as a kid was no homo. Hmm. And what was that phrase? Did we think about that phrase? It was just a magic spell. It was abracadabra for what? Touch. That's all it was. To put your arm around your friend, you had to say no homo because it was so devastating to, to, be, to be perceived as queer or feminine or what have you, uh, which is then to be perceived as useless. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're simply decorous, if you're, if you're uh, just there for beauty, if you're there for love, if you're there for touch, then you're weak. You're not thinking about progress and conquest. 
Um, and, and I think we've limited what it means to be male to the point where we've allowed it to be the furthest thing from being human. If you need, if you live in a world where your boys need a magic spell, a mantra to touch each other, then the society is really, really primitive, I think, uh, in where it sees its masculinity. And, and we, we, we speak of ourselves as a very advanced nation in science and weaponry uh, and, and, and all that. But I think when it comes to our understanding of what is possible with masculinity, we're, we're still very primitive. I was struck by your description of no homo as a kind of magic spell as an incantation that will allow boys and men to, in these very minute and marginal ways, retain some ability to be tender with each other, to touch each other, um, to engage in that way. And it strikes me as you are noticing the power of language to kind of open a crack Yes. in our possibilities of relation to 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 admit this ever so slight ability to connect and repair yeah and that feels to me very connected to the project of your work more broadly which seems to me to be about the reclamation of of the purple as you say the reclamation of the tender the reclamation of of beauty um the reclamation of emotion and the spiritual in yes. in corners of life, of masculinity, of America, of human experience, where those things are, are routinely forbidden. Absolutely. That's beautiful. That's exact. That's a great way to put it. Uh, and I think one of, one of my goals or my, one of my obsessions is to not have my characters or my works sort of embody um, old values of of um, triumph, uh, but rather use what is readily available to marginalize folks and celebrate the power in that. Uh, so in this way, you know, I don't, I'm not interested in creating a queer Asian version of John Wayne or Clint Eastwood or Superman. I'm more interested in using what's available to this experience as rehashed sites of power. And so in, in another dynamic in this book is that, you know, Little Dog is incredibly uh, small, quiet. He's a bottom. And instead of trying to change that in order to fit the mold of something recognizably heroic, he uses all of those tools to change the course of his life and to find power in tools that have been deemed defunct. And so this, this goes right back to that literary tradition that I, that I talked about. You know, um, and so he's, he, he tries to find what's exact, the tenderness, not as a weakness, but a mode and a balm. And, and he achieves himself through that. Um, and I, I wanted to find those things. I'm, I'm really interested in those things. You know, uh, how do you find what's most available to you? Uh, and also these women, you know, who survived trauma, survived war. I didn't want them to just suddenly heal or be women warriors, stoic, uh, one-dimensionally triumphant. I wanted them to have complete lives 
and to live on their own terms and to empower themselves the way I saw my parents empower themselves on their own terms with the tools they had. That is the great interest in me in writing fiction, especially because I see it as a simulation. You have all these questions and then you run the simulation called a novel. And then you say, well, how do we do it? How do we get there? Not by taking their their tools. You know, I, I think of Audre Lorde and I think, I'm like, you know, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Absolutely. And I think I'm interested in, maybe I don't like the master's tools. <laughs> maybe, maybe those tools never worked. Maybe I don't want them at all. Maybe I want something else. I'm so curious about your description of a novel as a, as a starting with a question and then being able to run the question through a simulation, which is the novel. Um, Because I have, I'm coming to a process in my own writing where I have this feeling like every book I'm ever going to write is going to be because there's a very specific question stuck in my head and it's, and I have to understand even what the question means and what it's asking and then attempt to, to move somewhere within it in the book. And what was the question of On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous? Oh, there were so many, but I think the the biggest one is what does life in aftermath look like? How do we survive multiple aftermaths that is American history? That's the large one, you know, and I think there are countless books being written about the epicenter, which is also, I think, a very... Um, this sort of masculinist obsession with the action, with the war, with the moment. Uh, But I think from my observation, it is uh, often queer folks and women who lived in the aftermath. They're the ones that heal the bodies of soldiers when they come home. They take the brunt of the PTSD that happens. They're the ones that often pick up, you know, the dead. This is go all the way back to Greek tragedies, right? They're the ones that bury the dead. They come out of the homes and bury the dead. They literally deal with aftermaths. That's the species. Uh, that's the species-wide condition of who we are. And I wanted a novel that dealt with war, but almost refused the war as a central stage, but allowed aftermath as something valid of literature and valid of an elongated gaze. Uh, a novel, I think, which, which is why it drew, drew me to it in the beginning, was that I couldn't turn away from it. A lyric poem, you know, one, two pages, and then I put it in a drawer and then kind of forget about things. But a novel, I had to tend to these people day in and day out and follow them um, faithfully. Uh, And I think that challenge was really um, revitalizing for me as a writer. If we take this formula of the event and then the aftermath. Um, you've described you described at the very beginning of our conversation something like an event, even if it was just an internal event, yeah. of entering this space mm-hmm. of the cornfield and then having a realization, an epiphany that felt like it was also happening in quicksand. And I'm 
I'm curious if you still feel like you're living the aftermath of that or parsing the aftermath of that experience or if it feels something like something very resolved for you. How linear and clean does that narrative feel to you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, it's hard to say. I'm, I'm suspicious of, of it being linear and clear. Um, and, and I think I wonder if, if the aftermath is inescapable. And I wonder if the role of the book is not so much to resolve an aftermath, but to build an architecture in which thinking and feeling can be housed within aftermaths. Uh, and I think, you know, all art, particularly sentence making, is order, um, even chaotic at times, but we are making order. One word comes after another, subordinate clauses, prop up independent clauses, and so on and so forth. And, and I think the great opportunity of writing is to give order within something that's supposed to be a wasteland. It's like, you know, you go into the wasteland and you start to erect this architecture and you say, this is how I think and feel. And this is what this architecture helps me do. Um, and I think that in itself seems miraculous to me, uh, to, to, to be able to do that. You know, I think often of Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is a book entirely in aftermath. You know, it, it's so incredible that her contribution to... The, the genre of slave narratives was about freedom, was, was, was about slaves leaving their lives and creating the first notion of an individual life. Um, and of course, it's about motherhood and much more. But I, I often look at, at that book as sort of this, this brave testimony to, to being someone who is both um, writing about characters who are both victims, but also rulers of their lives within aftermaths. Um, and I think I'm, I'm incredibly inspired by that book and a lot of her work. I love the image of language or a book as architecture that you built to house thinking and feeling. It reminds me of something I, I read that you said in a different interview that writing or language like the body is a place to store the soul, but mm. it is it is an external architecture that you build, perhaps beside your body, in which yeah. to store your thinking and feeling soul. Yeah, yeah. It's like a parallel universe. You know, I think I joke sometimes and I say, I think I, I, I write poetry and fiction. I don't know if I would ever write a memoir. Um, and I say so because I think I wrote, I wrote a novel because I'm a coward. <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm too, um, if I were to ask questions of my family, if I were to ask questions of my life uh, with an actual person, I think I would be crying in 30 seconds. Uh, nothing would get done and it would be brutal. I don't think I have the heart to be a, a documentarian, for example, sit a subject under some lights and ask some questions. I think I would fold um, so quickly. And so I think it's safer for me to ask questions of characters and then, you know, eject them into this parallel world and have them answer the questions for me. Um, you know, and I think, I think at the heart of it, it's, you know, cowardice. That's so fascinating. I've often felt that the reverse, that fiction 
and creating characters to ask questions to would be much more frightening than simply yeah. asking questions of, of life or of people. Yeah. But that's perhaps just a temperamental thing. Yeah, it's scary all, all around. <laughs> it's just whatever you're suited to, I guess. But it's yeah. none, of it, none of it is lovely, per se. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Though the results can be very lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The satisfaction of, of building a container that honestly and faithfully holds your questions. Oh, there's nothing like it. There's really nothing like it. You know, to, to, to say, wow, my DNA, the DNA of my mind. You know, often we, we talk about a fingerprint and how no one else on earth has it. But I think, what, what is the DNA of a personhood? You know, they're, they're, and we're lucky enough as a species to have this technology called language in which a book, a poem, and a novel, or even a memoir is that. It is the linguistic thumbprint of who we are, written right there on the page, and and no one else can really write and think in that way. Um, that seems so special to me, and I'm so grateful <laughs> for us as a species to have that tool. I, I write very seldom. Um, I Most of my writing happens in the body, I think, and I, I don't want to attach myself to even the identity of a writer or a career of a writer. Um, I don't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I've been thinking about this, you know, the, all of my 12 years doing this, and I still haven't been able to, to be comfortable identifying myself as a writer. Why do you think? I think there's so little ground in it. Um, and, and I worry that when, as soon as I call myself a writer, I'm chaining myself to something, an expectation, uh, a life, a career. Um, you know, like I grew up with folks who worked in factories and nail salons, and they did that work. They put their bodies in those rooms, in those factories every day from nine to five, sometimes nine to nine. And... That was very real to me. That was, ten, you know, absolutely tangible. And I think there's some sort of uh, maybe survivor's guilt uh, in my own thinking. You know, how dare I call myself a writer when I barely write? Um, but on top of that, I don't think a book seems so miraculous. It's so, when you finish it, it feels like you've done something against all odds with yourself that I think it, when you finish one, it's almost silly to think you can keep doing this or that you even should keep doing this. Um, and I think I'm more interested in seeing my work as the result of living rather than a career or a purpose for living. When you say you think most of your writing happens in the body, what do you mean? Like, for example, you know... Um, I used to, when I was a younger writer, I was in New York and all my friends, they did all this, um, you know, they write every day. They had, they were obsessed with word count and page counts. And, and I realized that this was a condition of um, not being writers, but being in capitalism. That so much of how we value our work was already predetermined by the culture of capitalism. And, and 
I, I saw progress weaponized uh, against each other, even very, you know, cordial conversations. It was, I saw that progress was, was a weapon. And it took a lot of love um, and excitement out of the writing process for me. And, and, you know, they would have contests where they write a novel a month or write 30 poems in 30 days. And, and it was very ecstatic and very beautiful, but I, I couldn't do it. I just felt like I was interrupting my own thinking just to have a product. And, and so I developed a different way that was much more comfortable to me, which was to take walks and to ask questions and to think. And, you know, one of the, the threads in the novel was this thread about veal, mm -hmm. for example, um, and, and the veal calf and how, you know, it's raised um, in, 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 you know, in a box this, the size of its life, I think <laughs> yeah. is one of the phrases used, which I love so much. Yeah, yeah. So I when I came upon that research, I just kept having this image of this poor little child. I mean, in the field at night, surrounded by lush, sweet nature, uh, in a full lit field and uh, full of stars and moons, and and then trapped in this 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 box, you know, the size of its life. And I didn't I didn't know what to do with it. But then I kept thinking about it. So why am I attracted to this? And I think that's the most important part of the writing process to me. And I I tell my students, if you have what you think is called writer's block. Don't fight it. If there's a reason, it means you're not ready. Imagine if I sat down and just started writing about veal in a field. I don't think anything would have come of it. But I'd stopped and I, I kept through months. I said, why am I obsessed with this? And I start to think about American boyhood, American childhoods. And I think that's why the veal is the emblematic symbol to me of the American childhood that's surrounded by such immense promise, immense horizonless opportunity. We are in fact trapped by the conditions that made us the rules that we're not supposed to break. And I saw that the Trevor character tied so closely. And so I made up the fact that he can't eat veal, that this tender part of him refuses to participate in, in veal eating and children eating. And, and so I, I just said, thinking and, and infusing meaning into the thought before a single sentence was written. That was so much more efficient. You know, if I were to write and free write that scene, it might have taken me about 50 pages to get to the connections with Trevor and then to build his character in a way that made sense for him to not eat veal, etc., etc., and to have that whole metaphor tied to the, the great tragedy of American youth. That might have taken me 50 pages. And imagine wading into that 50-page mess to salvage any clarity. I'm so struck by the resonance between the image of the veal as the metaphor for American childhood as in this field of immense possibility, but trapped trapped in this very confined small space and the image that you gave us at the very beginning of our conversation, which is of yourself also in a field looking up and feeling constrained or perhaps confronting for the f f in a new way a constraint and imagining something else. And it sort of sounds like what you're saying is that part of what writing can do or part of what writing is about for you is 
the process of imagining beyond present material constraints. Yes, and using all tools on your own terms. That's so important. You know, I think one of the the greatest um, failures we could do is to really look at literary progression as truly linear. Because when we do that, we almost deem everything in the past as defunct and useless. And also that we have to surpass it and innovate over it and, and supplant it. And, you know, there's so much great wealth that's been discovered by people who came before us and to see that we have to be, we have to erase them through our presence, which is, again, this very patriarchal mythos of the, the son must take over his father to have a, a legitimate life and et cetera. Uh, it, it's absolute BS, I think. And, and that's why I was interested in using a style that a lot of men have deemed uh, too prissy for them to use. Um, to use it in the present. It feels like drag to me to be extra. Uh, it's not, maybe it is purple, but maybe, and that's perfectly fine. It's extra. It's, there's too much glitter because there's a reason why, you know, we want to be blindingly present and seen. And, and that visibility is part of the triumph of surviving. Um, it's, I'm so, so fascinated into that because when modernism came, it came as, as a result of great shame. You know, uh, the, the, the European sublime that was brought forth by Romanticism and the Enlightenment was no longer feasible in fields after World War I, full of dead cattle, dead men, mustard gas, and absolute atrocity. You know, the, the, the odes to clouds and daffodils seemed silly and Im immature uh, after World War I. And I think it was rightfully so that a lot of uh, the Western tradition sobered up, quote unquote. But it was done only on the terms and with the terms and obsessions of white men. And then it was propped up as a universal value. Right, and so it's like it's a localized uh, uh, progression that was then presented as a universal truth. That was my problem with it. And I said, well, maybe just because you're ashamed of what you've done doesn't mean we should abandon the long sentence and the metaphor. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshman of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>